to this episode of Tea with Twiggy. It's great to have you here. This is a podcast where I catch up with friends and people that I find fascinating. I check that they're doing okay and ask for tips to help our stay at home more comfortable. I've invited Joanna for a chat and to join me for tea because we've known each other since the 1960s and I've always loved and adored her. She's one of the most wonderful ladies on the planet. She's also incredibly talented. You probably all know her from Absolutely Fabulous, but she's done so many things and so much for charity. And of course, we mustn't forget her fabulous travel programs. She is the most wonderful, divine Joanna Lumley. Joanna, thank you for coming to have tea with me. Virtual tea, it has got to be. Virtual tea. Oh, Twigs, it's such a treat. It really is. Isn't it funny? In this sort of locked off time, it seems that we're actually making more and more contact with people than we ever did usually, you know. All sorts of people have been sending emails and messages and telephone calls and things. It's absolutely lovely. And it's mostly people saying, hope you're all right, because, of course, one's old now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're the old big old brigade. <laughs> and it's families and it's people who are just far away who suddenly go, gosh, I wonder what it's like being in London, because a lot of the people I know are actually up on faraway hills or in the countryside. And I think they can see London with its terrifyingly high sort of death rate and so on as a, as a place of danger. But looking outside Twigs, all I can see is blue sky and birds that we can hardly ever hear in real London life, you know, I know. traffic. But, but I, I, you know, I was thinking this morning, I just hope people don't look out and think we've got to get outside. I, I think the message has really got across that we've got to stay home because we've got to get on top of this horrible virus and staying home is what we've got to do, which is why we're having tea virtually. So tell me, I've got a mixture of Earl Grey and Darjeeling with a splash of milk. You are very posh. I'm very posh. <laughs> I've got my mug of builder's tea. Um, you haven't. I, ha- so I have got my builder's tea. Twigs, when I was brought up, because my mother hated tea, my father adored it, but my mother loathed tea for some reason. I don't know why. So she, she wouldn't let us drink tea. And once when I was filming The New Avengers, and it was on Friday, and we'd been working sort of 14-hour days since Monday, and I'm always first up and so on. And we were absolutely exhausted. We were in a library with Steed and Gambit, and we were hunting down some sort of book. And it was getting into one of those extended days, and you know what it's like having done movies and things like this, how absolutely exhausted you are. Mm-hmm. And sitting on the top of a library ladder, the prop man came up and said, here you are, Joanne, I have this. And he gave me a mug of tea and it was builder's tea with two spoons of sugar in it. And I swear to heaven, that was the best nectar I've ever touched in my life. So it was just since then I've drunk tea. That's so fun. But you grew up in India, didn't you, in Kashmir? Well, I was born in India. I was born in oh, you Kashmir. were born there? Yeah, but we, we then had to leave quite quickly because it was the partition of India. And so we... We we followed my father's regiment to where it was next posted, which was out to Hong Kong. Wow. And then from Hong Kong, we then were sent down to Malaysia. And so my childhood until about eight was abroad, and then I came back to England. Ah, uh, this is why you've got the travel bug. That's right. That's exactly right, because oh, we moved all the time, yeah. Oh, my goodness. So when you started doing your, I have to say, wonderful, we've talked about this, your wonderful travel programmes. Mm. I mean, this must have been what brought it on, really, that, because you've travelled so much as a child. I think so. And I think it's to do with the fact that 
traveling always seemed um, pretty thrilling because you didn't know where you were going next. Um, excitement was suitcases being packed and moving mm. on, the sense of moving on, rather like those great camel trains, those great caravanserais, the dog barks, the caravan moves on. And so always moving on to somewhere new. And I think that stayed with me. And I found that all my life I've got slightly fretful if I can't get abroad. And in the days when you and I were modeling twigs, mm -hmm. We did endless jobs abroad. We were always being sent to, I don't know, Portugal or Austria or somewhere to do a photo shoot. And it was absolutely thrilling in those days. And because if you remember in the old passports, you'd get your passport stamped. That's right. And that, that was a kind of heavenly thing. You'd look through your passport and with all these different stamps and it felt so chic. And in your purse, you'd open it up and you'd go, oh, I've got some posadas on there. Oh, that must have been for my last it seemed so cool. When I first went to New York, which was, what, 1967, I went over to do a shoot for American Vogue. And when I when we arrived into New York, I got searched because oh it was the 60s. Yeah. Because I was kind of known as one of the young <laughs> swinging kids, yeah. <laughs> they took me in a room and searched me. I think they, they thought I was a a druggie or something I was so straight in those days I didn't drink I, oh I did smoke cigarettes actually actually when I went to Paris the first time and we went out to the restaurant I was doing the Paris collections um we went to a restaurant and everyone ordered wine and they came the waiter came to me and said what would you like madame and I said could I have a coca-cola please and he said what vintage and walked away but <laughs> <laughs> Twiggy, explain, explain what you meant by doing the collections, because it didn't mean you were a catwalk model. You didn't walk up and down with the clothes on. No, I did. You ever do catwalk? Because I no. never did. No, but what you meant was that when you when you went over to do the Paris collections, it was it that was, the, the catwalks had done happened, and the fashion editors had yep. picked out the dresses they wanted to be photographed, and they'd have put them on you. And the, the shoots usually take, took place in the night or evening. At night, exactly. Yeah, and because I was so weenie, you know, I was. Weeny little, a weeny little thing, hence the name. Um, and I was small, yeah. so a lot of the clothes that had been worn on the the catwalk models, who were normally six foot, yeah, and going at some, most of the clothes didn't actually fit me. And we actually, I can remember doing a shoot with Richard Avedon for American Vogue, and all of us having hysterics because these huge dress, you know, big dresses <laughs> torn, and I put them on, and one dress had a kind of cut out hole here that was meant to show your tummy and I put it on and the hole came in a very awkward position so we had absolute hysterics I, I couldn't wear met there was a young model for Cardan who was a little Japanese girl and all her dresses fitted me yeah but we did have and we I, I remember being introduced to peanut butter and jelly sandwiches because everyone on the shoot were American but, I, well, it was just I mean, we had a great time in the 60s. It was a great time. But I sometimes think now, gosh, the clothes we sold, if you remember how much went on behind in the photograph, the bulldog <laughs> clip and the sellotape and the bits of string to pull the skirt out and the things to make it look great. And they were sometimes, you, you were a very classy model, but I sometimes did the middle range. I mean, I adored it, but it was pretty middle range, kind of crumbly. Oh, come on, you, you, you were no, a pretty hard model, honey. Oh, my dear. But the, thing was that they were, the clothes weren't utterly brilliant, but we made them look fantastic because they all looked as though they were made to fit and looked so chic and lovely. But in those days, of course, now you can Photoshop things. There was no such thing. And those assistants in the studios who'd sit there painstakingly painting out 
terrible creases or blots. That's or, right. And they, they had little um, razor blades, didn't they? That's they right. Scratch out. Not that we had many lines then. We, I mean, we were, we, <laughs> we were so smooth. I know. <laughs> At 17. And I 18. came across one of my old... Um, do you remember those modelling cards we used to have, which you would yeah. would photograph you in various different poses <laughs> or looking slightly different looks? And what really shocked me was was the statistics. You know how you were tiny, but I just at a normal size was sort of 34, 24, 35. Mm-hmm. and I'm about twice that all over now. And I don't know. Yeah, me, me too. <laughs> I actually found a picture online i've never seen it before i'll send it through to you oh Mark. please it's do hysterical and it's you and me and i'm trying to see the names of the other people oh it's vicky hodge yes i remember vicky actually and joy Rance and some very peculiar looking chap i don't know who that is it's such a and you, oh, you look gorgeous but what You're are we gorgeous. doing i don't everything with him i'll send it to you it's hysterical i'd never seen it before okay. i mean these pictures come out of the woodwork don't they people send them to you and to me to get them signed and sometimes they think oh, i'd love to keep this i've never seen it before i get some that aren't me they send them for me to sign and it's not me <laughs> oh, no, i get those as well because i think there's a batch of us who look roughly sort of i don't know they usually come from germany <laughs> That's right. Or some of them are slightly saucy, saucy photographs. Yeah. They have to be a blonde girl with spiky eyelashes and yes. they've got them off the internet. And so I put a big sticker on them and say, not Twiggy. Yes, good for you. Good for you. <laughs> oh, gosh. I did just, sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, it seems so long ago, almost like a different time because yeah. we didn't have mobile phones. We didn't have... Uh, I don't know about you, but I never really ca- collected or kept the pictures we did. We just did a session and it would go into a magazine maybe three months later. But you'd never take it. You didn't buy magazines. No. People always say to me, oh, you must have got so, have you got all those 60s clothes you modelled? I said, no. no, they didn't give you the clothes. Not Most of them were samples anyway, yeah. weren't they? Yeah. So yeah. There was a, they were one-offs. I wish I had some of them, though. Oh, they were. I, particularly, <laughs> um, particularly, there was, I remember, a Mary Quant thing that I just adored. And sometimes some one or two things out of one's long life of putting clothes on and taking them off, one or two just hang around behind and you think, oh, I would have loved to have kept that in a kind of museum piece. I know. And I also had some some Bieber high heels, which made me six foot two. I'm five foot eight. Can you imagine? <laughs> they were platform shoes with kind of oh eight God. inch heels. I mean, how we didn't all break our legs. Oh on those pla- I had some platforms my, and my little funny little ankles. I mean, oh. I look like, I look like olive oil in them anyway, <laughs> but I mean, they were dangerous actually. Yeah. Really dangerous. I've got a few. Do you remember lovely Bill Gibb? Yes, sure. Darling, darling Bill, who I think was one of the great designers of yes. uh, the late 60s, early 70s, who we lost far too early. But yes. I've got a few of his. He made me some very, very beautiful outfits. I have got some. And actually, some of them are in the V&A. Oh, that's they, You know, they're like artworks. Yes, know, they are. They guys. are. Absolutely beautiful. And we were lucky enough to be modelling when um, – I know you I know you're on a different sort of pay scale, Twigs, but nevertheless – we we were richer than the girls who worked in shops, but we weren't oh, we weren't scandalously rich. And no. I remember that sentence. I don't know whether it was Helena Christensen. It doesn't matter who it was. Somebody said I wouldn't get out of bed for less than ten grand. You know, I know. I never earned ten grand in my <laughs> life in the whole life put together. And it seemed so different because I was on I four know. 
four guineas an hour for editorial. You were four guineas an hour? And five guineas for, for, um, for advertising. Yeah. Uh, but didn't you work, weren't you kind of Jean, Jean Muir's? Well, I did three months with Jean Muir, Muir's, the house yeah. model, yeah. And she loved She's, me dearly. I loved her, but she was, she was so important in my life because she was a very fine dressmaker and she insisted on being called a dressmaker not a designer she thought that was very oh, that's interesting and she she was a meticulous and just standing in her little kind of scruffy showroom with her pinning clothes on and saying oh. just making details everything was important and she taught me a kind of um an impatience with the slipshod. She would have nothing slipshod, nothing just... No, she was you know, immaculate, yeah. And even quite lovely clothes, which I look at when I, I, I hate... I don't know about you, but I've sort of... I've got no interest in clothes at all now. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've had them for so long. I like designing them when I do my ranges. I love oh, doing that. Different. But I've actually got a couple yeah. of original Jean Muirs that I got because <gasps> I love them so yes. much. Yes, I, I don't think I'd probably get into them now because I was so minute. I, I, but they're I beautiful. Know. They're in that silk jersey and yeah. they're very... Neat and lots and of detail, beautiful. the overstitch in different colours. And colors. the little covered buttons. Buttons, buttons, buttons yeah. So when you went on to play the glorious, wonderful Patsy yes. <laughs> in Avatar, did you get hysterical when you put the clothes together? Because they were very the other side of Jean Muir, really, all your outfits. Well, well mine were quite lovely because they were usually Betty Jackson, sometimes Jasper Conran. Very occasionally she'd have on a Chanel jacket. It was Adina who looked so shocking because she would always well, get... Well, that's true. That's she true. would always get the clothes one or two sizes too small because she was so vain. She thought she was coming. Jennifer, who, who quite often wore a fat suit, would force herself into these clothes. And it was great. And actually, How you ever got through that series without getting this? Did you used to have hysterics on set? Particularly when we were when we were rehearsing it, we used to cry with laughter. But we did it live in front of an audience, and you don't laugh when you're doing oh, that. Oh, no, I didn't realise No, that, and yeah. so you try to do it as well as you can. Occasionally, when it broke down, we would just become hysterical. Well, but the I audience mean, was hysterical. The audience well, was just... This, I still, I'll, I'll go to my grave thinking it's the funniest thing I've ever seen, was when, when, you, do, when you became old, and you do that scene and your knickers come down. <laughs> I mean, I thought I was going to die. Oh. I've, I've, I've got it. You can get it on YouTube and things. It tears me up. Every time I see it, because oh we were God. hysterical. Jennifer and I were hysterical. The director had become very cross because <laughs> it was late and we couldn't get it done. And, and we became more and more frightened and hysterical. And honestly, when the pants came off and she threw them in the bush, I thought I was going to faint. Well, mm. it is. That's going to be one of the funniest clips ever. Oh, <laughs> oh honey. But listen, tell me, Tuggy, because what happened, what was so thrilling was from us on this side of the thing, was that suddenly you'd crossed the water and uh -huh. you'd gone to America and you'd made a huge hit there. But in no time at all, you were on stage. You were on yeah. stage in The Boyfriend. Tell me how that happened. No, The Boyfriend was on film with Ken Russell. Well, then what was it on stage? You did uh, my one film? and only that I did with Tony Yeah. My God. But actually, I was going to ask you, because, you know, Ken Russell... Mm -hmm. As you said, I was modelling. I was, you know, I was 17, 18 years old. I met this amazing director called Ken Russell, who changed my life. Yeah. Because he suddenly, he obviously saw something and he cast me in The Boyfriend. Yeah. Um, which opened this, I would say it was like going into the secret garden. It was like, yes. oh, my God, this is amazing. Yeah. And that the same kind of thing happened to you because you were modelling. Yeah. And then I think my my first memory 
of you was the Avengers. But you, you, you'd done a few. I'd done a lot before film that. Before that, yeah, I'd done films. I'd done Coronation Street. I'd been oh, in Coronation a Street. That's yeah. Right. I'd done all, I'd been out of work. I'd done stage plays. I mean, I'd done sorts of, all sorts of things. And I didn't get the part in the Avengers till I was 30. And I'd started, Are you act, 30? and I'd started acting when I was 21. I was left modeling huge. when I was 21. That was huge. That turned you into kind of a superstar, didn't it really? Well, it changed my life completely because most of the other jobs I'd done were for one episode or, you know, or one yeah. thing. And if it didn't catch suddenly the Avengers, which was, Mm, I, I did two years of it with 13 hour long episodes mm. each year. Wow. So that was 26. And it was like making, it was like making, you know, 10 or 11 feature films in I two years. I was going to say, but what a learning curve. Fantastic. And all the best actors came on as guest artists and we shot at Pinewood Studios. It was all shot on film, like a film. That's right. That's and right. it was, it was brilliant. It was fantastic. I adored it. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So Ken Russell changed my life mm. because I never thought of doing anything like that. Yeah. And he did change my life and it, you know, forever. Yeah. Did you have a, one person, a teacher or a mentor or somebody who no, it, it wasn't. I sort of secretly always wanted to, I always wanted to act ever since school because in a funny way, I knew that I had entertain. I, I was a clown and I, I loved sort of showing off and being silly and being in the school plays and, and I wanted to do it more than anything, but I was turned down for, for RADA when I was, I tried from school at 16. And I, I was, I did such a poor audition, they turned me down, it didn't amaze me at all. I, but I was so terrified of trying to go to another drama school, which might also turn me down. I thought, if too many people say you're no good at acting, I'll have to give it up. <laughs> so I thought, if I, I don't want to hear that anymore. And I'll just muscle my way in through, you know, if, there's a, if the pantry door or window is open, I'll squeeze through that and get into the house somehow. And that's how I did it. So I started off by appearing in kind of with one line in a film and then gradually got onto one line on television and then through there onto the stage where I just sort of bluffed my way, always pretended I'd done lots, always pretended I had a massive sort of back catalogue, which I hadn't, and, <laughs> and, and just learnt on the job, really. Well, it's like we when you meet like lots of actor friends, and I'm sure you've got them, maybe you did it as well, when they went for auditions and they'd say, can you ride a horse? Oh, yes. Never been on a horse in the life. Can you swim? Oh, yes. Can't. Yeah. In the shallow end. We yeah, did all that. yes to everything. Yeah, we did. But the other thing I used to do in auditions is sometimes when I thought I was wrong for the part, I'd say, you don't want me. You want censor. They're much better. And they'd look at me as if I'd just, you know, killed myself. And they'd just go, well, look. I'm, because part of me is a director, I think, you know, Twiggy. Part of me has always been interested in directing. I'd sort of love that as much as anything in the world. I've done one tiny, short, 10-minute film as a director, and I liked it more than I can tell you. But I, I, I feel that, funnily enough, modelling taught me this, which is that when you're in front of a camera, you've got to know what you look like. Yeah. You've got to be aware of what works and doesn't work, and you get aware of the lights. You become aware of why 
particularly good photographers who are both lucky enough to yeah. work with, why they choose a particular framing or mm-hmm. background or whatever it might be. And or even angles. Sometimes they've got the camera on the floor and you're staring at the sky and you think, God, this is an interesting way of doing it. And I, f- I found that that's in, it worked its way into all my way of acting. I'm always conscious of how it will look on screen. Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually think modelling is a very, very... I know lots of people kind of poo-poo it. The models are kind of thick and stupid or whatever they think. But I actually think you learn a lot from modelling as you say, about using the camera, how the camera works. And it certainly helped me because suddenly when I was thrown in to star in The Boyfriend with Ken, I wasn't nervous of the camera. No. I was nervous about singing and dancing and acting, but yeah. I had I had a lot of encouragement from Ken and all the cast were wonderful to me. But I was so used to the camera that that wasn't an issue. So I think it was incredibly helpful thing to start with, actually. I think it's terrific. And also in modelling, if you think of it, probably me more than you, because we were always asked to do things like, like in the in the clothes that you were going to do the photograph in, they'd say, oh, in this you're a sort of, you must think of yourself as a glamorous society hostess. In these clothes you're going to be a secretary. In these clothes you're going to be a young mum, you know. Mm. With some, So you are partly acting. You are sort of half getting into it. Do you know what I mean? And even even though people still say, oh, modelling, you know, it's kind of thick as a plank. When I think also it's taught me how to put up with extreme discomfort, either <laughs> freezing cold, freezing, standing with nothing on in midwinter, you know, know, just a little cotton dress or something, or in midsummer in thick, thick clothes and or running into the sea and people telling you to stay there, stay there, you're looking cold, keep staying there, keep grinning, you know. Absolutely. And we, we learnt to be very... We were tough little guys, I think. We and were. We also we were used to. Did you? You could do your own makeup, couldn't you, Tweet? Yeah, I did all my own makeup. I bet you did, didn't you? We didn't have makeup artists then. We didn't. We were good at doing it because we were we were making our faces. We were picking up on what was going on in the world, or or creating new styles. I mean, yeah. you brought in. I, I mean, the Mary Quant look was there, but you absolutely set in the psyche this these lovely stabbing kind of eyes. The eyelashes underneath. And the three and, by wall, three pairs on top. Oh my <laughs> God. And the, and the and that lovely shadow in the in the bone of your eye, you know, that in the yeah. in the whole hollow of your it eye. Take, it used to take me an hour and a half to put that on. Oh my God. And freckles. I loved drawing on freckles like this. Oh, I didn't I, have I had my own freckles. They were they were great. <laughs> So I want to go on to, because I don't want to run out of time, but I want to go, I want to ask you about, because your travelogues have been so brilliant. You know, the Silk Road, the India trip, the Northern Lights. That's oh, my God. What was it like, the Northern Lights? I mean, I saw it on the telly, but unbelievable. It was, it was this extraordinary thing of something that it's, it had been with me all my life, because I had this book as a child about a little penguin who saw the aurora Australis, in fact, but because ours is the Borealis up in the Northern Hemisphere. That was in the Southern Hemisphere. And I saw this little, just a drawing of what looked like a silk curtain hanging in the sky. And I thought, before I die, I have to see that. Well, life ripped on and there was no question of doing anything. Because rather like you, if you're very busy, you, you never get to do these things. You don't go and see, you're working so hard and traveling everywhere, you don't actually get to see or do things. And suddenly on, I was doing Desert Island Discs and I'd chosen a piece by Sibelius. And I said, I can imagine walking behind Sibelius and seeing the Northern Lights. At that point, a producer who I didn't know telephoned and said, do you want to do that? We can do a program of you searching for Northern Lights. So that's how it came about. 
And they only had about nine days to do it because um, that, that was the slot we had. So, you, you know, like all filming, it's, it's finite. It doesn't, money doesn't last forever. And as we worked our way up through Norway, we kept on not seeing them. They said, oh. Because they, it's not definite that you're going to see them, right? No, it's not. And it's not like the Niagara Falls. You can't just go there and see them. And so it got to day, day seven. <laughs> day six, day seven, and we still haven't seen them. It's too warm. They're in different parts of the country. It's too cloudy. It's too this, too that. So when eventually, suddenly one night, they said, quick, 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 put all your stuff on. Get out to the beach in the nighttime. Let's just get there and stand and you'll see them. And when I saw them, I thought I was just going to die and go to heaven because they arrive, you see them in front of the moon and stars. That I hadn't realized. They're so oh, wow. close to us that, that you honestly, it's almost like angels to a year. I can't explain it. It's, I, I felt completely washed clean. I felt blessed. I felt, mm. I felt safe. I felt safe about dying. I felt safe about just being part of the entire system of whatever it is, you know, what's it all about, Alfie? You know, we don't really know what life or death is, but I felt completely safe. And so I've always been trying to say to people, please, if you can, get to see the Northern Lights. Oh, well, when we can travel again, that's going to be top of my list. Please, honey, I'll, you'll love it. I'll get, I'll get the places to go to from you. Okay. <laughs> well, where are the places you're dreaming of going while we can't go anywhere? It all, almost, well, while we can't, it's, it's, it's going back over some of the places and thinking where I would have loved to have gone in, in Georgia, the great country of Georgia with the Caucasus Mountains to the north of it. The, the Caucasus, <clears throat> rather like Austria and Switzerland, before they became Austria and Switzerland. I mean, it's just completely bare and empty, but too beautiful almost to believe. And they've opened a kind of Caucasus walking trail. Oh, wow. And I thought, oh, oh you oh. should do that. One day I thought I'd love oh, to watch. do Oh, one <laughs> day. with all the rest of the, the audience. <laughs> and the other part of the world, which is just Central Asia, there's so much there, all those Turkmenistan and Tajikistan and those extraordinary places. You're much braver than me. I'd be a bit. Do you get scared? No, I don't. I'm not scared. I was. No, you're amazing. I, see, that would scare me. I, I'm not very good about going into the mental. I remember asking you once about <laughs> what do you do about going to the bathroom. <laughs> well, I'm quite intrepid about that. I think because because I think my mother was. You know, we 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 were brought up pretty much to love snakes and. Um, handle frogs and toads and slugs and things like this and also to be quite sort of outdoorsy and not mind things and so I think you know we always went to you know pee behind a bush and or something like that so none of that outdoors stuff worries me and I, f I find that um, people you know I think there is a real panic as was shown just recently with this panic about buying lavatory paper by the people are, and quite often the first thing people ask me when I've been to somewhere far away how did you go? You know, what? Where did you go? What like? Well, I presume I presumed you stayed at very posh hotels, and that's why you really made me laugh when you said, "Oh, no, I just go behind the bush." And, oh my god! And sometimes it's not even a bush; sometimes in a flat <laughs> desert. And but the people there who live in these deserts, they're so courteous, and people turn their backs, and you walk maybe fifty meters away, and you you or you're usually wearing. You get sensible about what to wear: long cloaks or robes, or have a bit of you know, something you can sort of discreetly squat down and nobody but nobody looks. But it's interesting. If you if you just if you just get used to it, it's not so scary. But if you are afraid, the best country in the world to go to is Japan. Because oh, the yeah, lavatories right. literally learn your name and sing sing out your name as you come through the door. They go, Welcome Joanna's bottom. Come in here and sit down. <laughs> <laughs> and actually in Japan, 
Yeah. Because I was reading an article recently because of this shortage of loo paper. Yeah. Somebody's brought into the UK these new toilets that wash you and dry you, so oh, you don't need loo paper. don't need anything. Yeah, they had those in Japan 15 ages, years ago. Ages ago. Because I remember getting hysterical with laughter. I couldn't believe it. But oh, they are brilliant. It's they're completely idea. brilliant. And they're very tactful because I remember stopping at a service station um, in Japan uh, and I, I went to the ladies' room. And there was, first of all, the kind of counter where you have all the basins and things like that was decorated with the most beautiful little miniature grand piano and, and a bouquet of flowers and when you went into the loo, it had a little a sort of bracket in the corner, which was where if you had a baby, you could prop your baby in the corner. It's sort of propped up in a little sort of net to have your legs coming through. And then you could choose the sound you wanted, which was either running water or bird song. You could put that down. I mean, the whole thing was so carefully and beautifully thought out. I remember when we were the last there, Lee, Lee was touring with the RSC. They were doing Midsummer Night's Dream. He was playing Oberon. And I just went out to visit because I love Japan. And they, they played Japan. And when we were there, they were doing this experiment where they they got a very, very expensive, I think it was a, a kind of Nikon camera yeah. that they put on a tripod. Oh, thank you very much. Tripod. And they put it in like in the middle of Oxford Circus, like the equivalent. And left it there, and it stayed there for three days. Nobody touched it. Nobody stole it. Amazing. Can you imagine that happening? <laughs> well, our production manager, we were leaving one place early, early in the morning and driving on to the next. And the production manager had a wadge of, of Japanese money, which she left kind of on her side, side table. And they were so anxious about getting it back to us that they got a motorcycle and they found out where we were going and they got the motorbiker to come biking after us. They're so, so clean, but so scrupulous and so honest and so courteous. It's a stunning country. It's wonderful culture, absolutely. And did you go on the bullet train? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my you go by Mount Fuji. Yeah. Um, that's one of the great moments of my life, seeing that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. We were lucky because sometimes it's covered in cloud. But it was a clear blue sky day and great food. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. It's just divine, the whole place. Um, the only thing about getting on the trains is it's quite anxious-making because you don't just wander up and down the platform. You've got to stand neatly in line, do you remember, yeah. on that place, and you each have a spot, rather like us now queuing. St stand on the spot, and when the doors open, you have exactly 27 seconds to get on the Of course, you take on all the camera equipment, throwing it on and hurling ourselves in. So now you've been stuck at home, like we all have. Have you learned anything new? Sort of. I mean, what I never do is read books in the daytime in real life because it seems such a luxury. And this time, to be able to sit and read even for half an hour, I feel it's a stolen joy and a stolen pleasure. I have learned that even though I've got a thousand things to do in sorting through files or writing names and places on the backs of photographs even, or just doing a whole lot of stuff. I can't do it. I can't settle to it. And a mass of people I know go, I can't sort of seem to settle to anything. Um, my friend and yours, Giles Brandreth, has settled something. He's writing another book. He's writing a book. He's writing a book. I can hardly write a letter at the moment. So it's quite odd. And I'm just thinking, don't get in a stew about this, because it is an extraordinary time for us all. 
I've loved watching box sets at night. Stephen and I just sit and watch gorgeous things. We've particularly loved Call My Agent, the um, the French series. I don't know if you've seen that. Oh, somebody told me about that. I haven't seen it. Then the greatest treat in the world is waiting for you. It's on Netflix, and it's a French it's a French series, and it will delight you completely. Oh, okay, we'll we'll watch that. Somebody feed Phil. Have you seen that? No. Oh, it's so wonderful. Carly, my daughter, told me about it. It's the guy who was in Nobody. Everybody loves Raymond, which was an American sitcom, and he's this divine. We've all fallen in love with him. He's so lovely. He's a comedian. Yeah. And he goes round in, well, we've only watched New York at the moment, but he does all different cities and he goes to all the different restaurants. Yeah. And he's got really elderly Jewish mum and dad who at the end he goes and has a meal with them and talks food. I, it, it was so funny. His mother was so funny. It, it, you watch it. It's good. Um, somebody feed Phil. Well, this is one of the things which I have learnt through this lockdown is that I've never really had time or inclination to watch the, you know, people say, have you seen the box set of, or you want to see that? And you go, I haven't got time. And now we have got time. We watch two or three episodes a night. We've never done that. <laughs> We've never done that. So this sort of heavenly binging, I mean, it will die away soon. I've done a lot more gardening um, in this blissful weather and feel so lucky to have a garden and to be able to do that. We're in a flat, so we've got a garden square, but I don't think they take kindly to me digging in. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very pretty garden square, and we can go in it. At least we've got a bit of outside space. Yes. It's also shown me to you the other thing, which is very sweet, is our eight o'clock on Thursday nights applauding. Yeah. We live in a square, so we can see all around the square, and all the windows, doors, all opening and people clapping. And this last Thursday, the most heavenly thing happened. From four doors down, um, our neighbours, two youngish children, came out in their pyjamas and bare feet and raced up and down the pavements, banging saucepan lids. Brilliant. Wee Willy Winky runs up and down, you know, in the nightgown, banging and banging. And there was something so thrilling, as if they were little creatures left let oh, out of a cage. I found it really emotional, actually. It is. It was... Um... Well, these, I have to say, these doctors and nurses, I, I, I mean, they're just unbelievable. I think the hardest thing for people like us, who are naturally quite kind of doing people and loving and giving, is not being able to help anybody, not being able to do anything. That's the awful thing. And if you think of, if you think of the great wars, you could do something. Somehow you could go and cook soup and stand or serve tea you know, to soldiers or something. But here we can't seem to do anything. And I think that's what's making it very hard. It's very hard. But, I, but you said at the beginning of our little chat that, and I do think that it's actually as horrible as it is, and it is horrible, but that it's also brought out the wonderful side of mm. human nature, you know, people helping each other. I mean, when they they ask for volunteers, 750,000 people volunteer. I mean, that's Wasn't amazing. That great? And that's and the interesting thing, Triggs, about being, I can't say our age because you're like a baby compared to me. But well, I'm not. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in the bracket, love. <laughs> but we can't because we're considered old. So we're I no know. Old, you know, we're dangerous. People are looking we're, da- we're dangerous. <laughs> oh, we're very dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, it's been so lovely talking to you. This has been a huge treat. 
Actually, before we go, do you remember that thing we did at the Cadogan Hall? We did a, a Q&A chat for the public. With it was such fun with Lillian. It was hysterical. Who, who was interviewing us? Can you remember? Uh, Joe Wiley or something, wasn't it? Joe Wiley? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, 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 yeah it was. It was fun, wasn't it? It was huge fun. And it was, it was, I loved the audience because they loved us because they knew us all from those days. We were sold out, weren't we? We were sold out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then you went on to do your amazing, I have to give, give you credit, your amazing one woman show. I take my hat. That's hard. You know, when we did the Q&A, there were three of us and we were answering questions. Yeah. But to get up on that stage and do your work, you were brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Well, I'm thrilled to bits, Twiggy, because it just gave me a chance to use bits of my life that you think, is this worth anything when you're doing it? The answer is yes. It's always got a funny story or something or something connected with it, which can bounce through life. We've just got to keep on being as optimistic as possible i know it's very hard in these times and i think it's been very hard for a lot of people you know especially you know families that don't live in big houses and have gardens and don't have i mean i live in a flat but it's a very big flat so we're very fortunate yeah um some people you know i think are suffering greatly and also elderly people who are on their own those are the ones who worry me most of all but I think that you'll find that most of them have got beloved neighbours, and even if it irritates them, as hell, somebody knocking on the door saying, there's more food outside. We're all thinking about each other in a way that we didn't do before this thing happened. Yeah. And I hope it, you know, so one of my mates said, I hope people carry on treating each other like this when this is all over, because I think we've learned a big lesson. We have, and I think that that governments and administrations around the world have learnt something about this. I don't see how America can now go on without a national health service. We've got to protect people. It doesn't matter who they are and whether they can pay or not. I think it's going to stop stop us being able to take for granted people like teachers and drivers and sweepers and cleaners and uh, NHS staff and all the carers in care homes. And all the, all the ones in the supermarkets, they're amazing. Amazing people. And we've got to then realise how important it is that unless we have somebody to pick our beautiful fruit and vegetables, unless, somebody, unless we go out and pick them, they're not going to pick themselves and then they'll lie and rot. So it's going to be a kind of wake-up call. And I'm hoping, like mad, that kind of a new order will come across the world and we will begin to think. We may have through the tectonic plates shifting, we might be on a better path for the future. I think it should be Joanna Lumley for Prime Minister. (laughs) (laughs) I'd vote for you. (laughs) Except I wouldn't wish that job on anyone, quite honestly. (laughs) Anyway, I love you to bits. And we're going to get together properly when this is over and have property... Yeah. Or even a good dinner and a nice glass of wine. <laughs> I love you, Bye. Bye. Ah, oh, that was so lovely chatting to Joanna. I do absolutely adore her. If you enjoyed our chat, I've got some smashing guests coming up over the next few weeks, so don't forget to listen. If you've enjoyed listening to Tea with Twiggy, please take a moment to give us a lovely five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people to find the show. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to this podcast so you auto-magically get the next episodes for free. And do tell all your friends and family about it too. 
If you want to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Twiggy or you can find me on Instagram at Twiggy Lawson. My thanks go to all the people that have helped this podcast happen. Many thanks to James Carroll and all the team at North Bank Talent Management. Thanks to all the team at Stripped Media, including Ben Williams, who edits the show, my producer, Kobe Omanaka, and executive producers, Tom Wally and Dave Corkery. The music you can hear now is my version of Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. If you'd like to hear the whole song, you can find it and all the other songs I've recorded on iTunes and Spotify. So check it out. I look forward to you joining me for my next episode. So see you then. Bye. just heard a stripped media production.